Spoiler alert, everyone in this podcast is dead. I don't usually like seltzer water. Usually it's because they just taste like essence of ass. <laughs> you this better is... record this out. <laughs> I love this South. I'm just not from the South. And you are definitely from the South. I'm from the South. Southern born, Southern bred. And when I die, I'm Southern dead. Get comfortable. There's a pillow there. I have blankets if you need them. I really know nothing about what Zach has prepared. Hide your children. Don't play this at work. Well, <laughs> you can be a victim if you are murdered. Are we ready? Yeah, we're ready. <laughs> okay, let me we're ready to learn here. about all the spirits and ghouls. Oh my god, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Thank to you. Another, yet another episode of Dead Atlanta. Whenever you say welcome back, I'm like, to me. <laughs> Just to Janet. Speaking of dead in Atlanta, you and I almost got in a really bad car accident last night. Yeah, don't tell that to our moms. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, we're fine. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't actually contact. We were fine. But I thought for sure we were going to hit that car. By the way, this was not Shanae's fault. It was the other driver's fault. There was lines of traffic waiting at the light, and there was a break in the light, and he was trying to pull through the line of traffic into my lane. And so just his little nose peeped through, but I was like... Well, to be honest, I screamed. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You let out this blood-curdling scream <laughs> that I've never heard before in my life. It was a very classic girl scream. And, and it's so weird how you and I had very different reactions. <laughs> so you were, screaming, you were screaming bloody murder. I was silent. I was like, well, it is what it is. If this is how we go, this is how we go. <laughs> But we're here. We made it. We're we fine. We made it. We made it. It was we're a here. scary moment. I had to take a moment to collect myself. But yes. We're here. Back to the podcast. Well, hold on. <laughs> I do want to say that we were talking about bidets at the moment, but now we can continue. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, bidets were not our last conversation. So not our last words. <laughs> God. I literally said that to Zach afterwards. I'm like, what if those were my last words was talking about the freaking bidet or something? <laughs> Anyway, we're here. We survived <laughs> to tell the story, and we're here to talk about dead people in Atlanta. So, as a reminder, Janae does not know the topic of discussion before we record this. She yeah. doesn't know anything. Also, sorry to interrupt you, but I am glad you said that because as I'm listening back to these episodes, I feel like I contributed a lot of mm-hmms and yeahs. <laughs> I'm just absorbing it with everyone. So it's, yeah. I just want you to not be like, wow, she really just sucks at asking questions. <laughs> no, it's because she's hearing about these people as y'all are hearing about yeah. them for the first time. Look, there was another one. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes Janae makes requests. And last time she requested specifically a murder story. Yes, I'm so excited. Well, boy, do I have a murder for you. <laughs> <laughs> Ask and you shall receive. <laughs> I really don't even know where to start with this one. It is such a chaotic and crazy story. It's so hard for me to pin down a point of where to start here. So usually... 
just to kind of let y'all peep behind the curtain a little bit, I usually have a pretty detailed outline that I use. Of course, this is not scripted. It's a conversation. But I do have an outline of notes that I rely on. Here, <laughs> I don't really have an outline. Just because the story is so wild. It's so ridiculous and crazy. It's just all over the map. So I'm not sure where to start. I think maybe the best place to start is a quick summary. Start at the very beginning. <laughs> well, I think actually I'm going to start at the end. Oh, just okay. to give you a quick summary. So our dead Atlantan this week is Mike Thevis. Thevis? Thevis. T-H-E-V-I-S. Mike Thevis. Okay. He was an Atlantan known in the 70s as the king of pornography. Oh, God. And the sultan of smut. Oh, I'm sorry. I do like the title, sultan of smut. It's very alliterative. It's very catchy. Yeah. And here's the spoiler. He was ultimately convicted of murder. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to get into this. So I think let's start at the beginning for our deep dive. Mike Thevis was born not in Atlanta. He was actually born in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1932 to Greek immigrant parents. And he grew up very poor and he dropped out of high school in North Carolina and actually hitchhiked his way to Atlanta in 1951. He wanted to escape kind of the rural poverty of North Carolina. Atlanta was the biggest closed city and he hitchhiked his way here in the early 50s. Mm. He got a job working at a newsstand for $50 a week. He was living, and I wouldn't say poverty, but it, it was a struggle. He was really struggling to make ends meet. By the way, when he was just 19, he met a woman named Joan, who worked at a nearby shop close to his newsstand, and he married her, so he was 19, and Joan was only 16. When they got married? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, and they were quite, I would say, struggling financially. Yeah. So they lived in a really small apartment in the Pittsburgh neighborhood. It was just a struggle for them. But he kept at it, so he kept working in the newsstand business. And by 1955, he actually owned three newsstands, which is pretty good. It's progress, but it's still not a lot of money. So we're really fortunate to actually have listeners kind of across the globe. So if you don't know, when we say Pittsburgh, there's a there's a portion of Atlanta oh. called Pittsburgh, not, <laughs> not the Northeast. Point. Yeah. Yeah, we should clarify. By Pittsburgh, we don't mean Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So originally, Mike did not have an interest at all in pornography. But one day he noticed that the vast majority of what he was selling in his newsstands was pornography. In his words, he said, 90% of my profits were coming from 10% of my inventory. Okay. So he didn't carry a lot of porn, but it was selling like off the rack. He couldn't keep it in stock fast enough. He noticed this, of course. He had some good business acumen and he kind of delved into this. So he started out in the pornography business really by publishing a guide to America's nudist colonies. And this guide was very successful financially and it didn't even have any pictures. Like you could... Like, if you want to go on a tour of the nudist colonies, mm -hmm. here's the colonies, yeah. basically. This was your roadmap guide. Okay. And it flew off the shelves. It sold out. And that was when he knew, oh, okay, porn is the business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's where the money is. He really had his big break when he kind of moved from rags to riches when he discovered 
peep show machines. The things that you put your face up against and like you can see. Yeah. Like wow. Slide. I was going to ask, are you familiar with yeah, the peep show machines? It seems like you're very familiar. Yes. I was trying to, what was I watching? Oh, I was watching something. It was a documentary. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was about some murders. And one of the people that they interviewed was the daughter of the man that was really known for turning Times Square into, quote unquote, a Mm -hmm. smut area. Because I guess Times Square used to be very pornographic. Yes, yes. And I guess the kind of inn that he saw were those, what are they called? The peep show Mm -hmm. machines? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting you should bring up New York. And you're right. In the 70s, during this time period, Times Square was very much known for being an area of pornography mm-hmm. where you would buy your porn magazines or whatever. And of course now it's a tourist trap. <laughs> it's yeah. very commercialized. It's very different. But that is actually where Mike Thevis discovered Peep Show Machines for the first time. Oh my goodness. He was on a business trip to New York. He saw this and he thought, wow, that's the money. That's it. So he got in touch with his, I guess the best word to describe this guy is a minion. <laughs> he was just kind of his right-hand man, his secretary, his assistant, his his go-to guy was Roger Underhill. So we got with Roger and he said, I know that we can improve this peep show machine and make it better. Let's do it. Like We can advance the technology. And they did. By 1969, they had their own version of a peep show machine and they sold them around the country. They just really couldn't keep up with the demand. The demand was so high for these machines. And that's really how... He, his business soared and took off. And Mike Thevis became a millionaire before he was 40. Oh my gosh. So, by the way, were these machines like small handheld-ish devices or like... (laughs) I don't think so. I think it was something that you could keep in like a bookstore or a magazine shop in the corner and you can go and it was like pretty evident. It was obvious. Oh, so the people purchasing them were like businesses, not like for personal Oh no, it wasn't personal people. People who had businesses. And he formed a company to produce and sell these machines. It was called Cinematics. And they were actually headquartered in downtown Atlanta on Marietta Street. Mike Thevis, I think you might say, had a bit of an ego. You could probably say he had a god complex. He wanted to not just make a dent in the porn industry. He wanted to be like the king of porn in America. So he wanted to completely control the porn industry. He wanted to be the main person where someone thought of porn, it's up Mike Thevis automatically. So he wanted to be the head of the entire porn industry, the head honcho in America, like mid-century America. So of course, as Mike's company took off astronomically, there were copycats. There were people who saw, oh, Mike has this really successful business selling peep show machines. I can do that too, and I can also make a little bit of money. So one of his main rivals was this guy based in Kentucky, Nat Balin. Thevis was a guy who you didn't really want to mess with. Oh, no. (laughs) You didn't want to be his competitor. He didn't like when you took his idea and ran with it and made your own money. So remember that Mike Thevis had this underling whose name was Roger Underhill, Mm -hmm. his right-hand man, He hires Underhill to break into Nat Palin's factory and warehouse in Kentucky and burn it to the ground. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So first they threw paint on all of the machinery to make sure they couldn't produce anything. And then they just set the whole thing ablaze. It was burned to a crisp. And this is really just the start of Mike Thevis's life in crime. He eventually graduates from arson to outright murder. 
<gasps> Do you want to hear about this? Of course. <laughs> this is where we get into the good stuff. So there was a guy named Ken Hanna. He was actually a former employee of Mike Thevis. He worked for Mike making these peep show machines, but then he left and he became a competitor. Well, one day in November of 1970, Mike invited Ken Hanna to his factory for a, quote, business meeting. Mm-hmm. So Ken, you know, innocently shows up to the warehouse saying, oh, it's just my former boss. Maybe he wants to merge. Maybe he wants to buy me out. Early in the morning, they're in the warehouse on Marietta Street, and Mike shoots Ken Hanna dead (gasps) on the floor of his factory. Oh, my gosh. Shoots him three times in the chest and once in the head. Oh, my gosh. This is a crazy story. This is early in the morning on a weekday, and his employees are about to get there, like in the next hour. Wait, whose employees? Mike Thieves. Mike's? Yeah. So Mike's employees are about (gasps) to get there. So he has to figure out what to do with this dead body. (laughs) So Ken Hanna had driven there in his Cadillac. I guess the business was good for Ken Hanna. Yeah. So Mike thinks, okay, I'm going to put his body, Ken Hanna's body, in the trunk of his Cadillac. Oh, God. Puts him in the trunk, closes the trunk door, and then realizes, oh, the keys are in Ken Hanna's pocket. So (gasps) the plan, of course, was to put him in the trunk and then drive the car off and ditch it somewhere. But he didn't think this through. (laughs) So the keys were still in Ken's pocket. So he kind of freaks out and panics, of course. Who does he call? Of course, Roger Underhill. No. He says, oh, I've kind of messed up. You (laughs) get to the factory immediately. You have to help me out. Roger does not blink an eye. He's like, okay, I'll be there. He shows up. And he saves the day. Roger's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Roger's like, yeah, Ride of course I'll save this. Of course. Okay. He's messing with our money. Yeah. Roger uses a screwdriver to pop the trunk. He gets it open. Here's the best part. He fishes out the keys from this corpse's body <laughs> from the pocket. And they're finally able to get into the car and drive it. And they dump this car with the corpse in the back in a parking lot by the airport. Oh my gosh. They just leave it there to rot. Ew. They use a blowtorch <gasps> to melt the pistol that they used and to melt the screwdriver that they used to pop the trunk. And then they toss the rest of the evidence into the Chattahoochee River. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now, of course, Ken Hanna's body was eventually discovered. Yeah. I would hate to be that agent or whoever it was <laughs> that discovered this rotting corpse in the back of a Cadillac. But yeah. Of course, it was eventually discovered. And we'll go back to that. But meanwhile, just know that Mike's business was absolutely thriving. By 1972, Mike's business was worth 12 million dollars oh my god yeah by the way this is in 1972 money oh i was gonna say oh my god so a huge sum of money it's very successful and he can't help but show off like i said this guy has a huge ego so as part of his success he builds this extremely over-the-top lavish tudor-style house with 30 rooms it's like the size of a hotel it's known as Lionsgate Estate. And Janae, I have texted you a link with pictures to this house. Oh, 
whoa. I just want you to go through and look at the opulence and just extreme, like, ridiculousness of this house. Oh my gosh. The grounds are immaculate and big. It looks like a castle. It's a castle. It's insane. There's like a balcony. It's 30 rooms. There's a huge pool. Okay, and everything is in excellent condition, too. Yeah. These are modern day pictures, but I'm yeah. sure it was in excellent condition back then. Yeah, like nothing looks like it's fallen in disrepair. Fireplaces. Ooh, and a copper hood range which is beautiful but you know that's not <laughs> very fancy yeah it's not gonna be cheap wow this is beautiful so that's where he lived by the way he was also a very generous philanthropist in atlanta during the 70s he mike was yeah he regularly oh. wrote really big checks to local nonprofits and charities <laughs> and i suspect that he did this to combat his unsavory image he was known as the king of porn, but he also wanted to be known as a philanthropist. So he mm. would write really big checks to nonprofits in town. But we already know we cannot be fooled. So in 1973, he actually organizes a second murder. What? Yeah. One what? was not enough. I like mean, it- if you're competing against him, he's going to kill you. Similar story. His name is Jimmy Mays, and he's a former employee. So while he was working for Mike, he, of course, learned how to make these peep show machines. Then he leaves Mike's company and he starts his own. Big mistake. Huge. (laughs) You already know that Mike does not like competition. Yeah. And he has this underling, Roger, who will kill people for him. So on September 13th, 1973, Jimmy is leaving a day from work. He gets into his pickup truck turns the ignition, truck blows up. No! His body soars to the roof of the truck. His body is splattered all over Peachtree Street. Roger, at the direction of Mike, had installed a pipe bomb. Oh my god! Get this, it gets even crazier. Not only do they kill him, Roger actually, this is crazy, he collects the skin and bones. What? Yeah, he collects Jimmy's skin and bones, and he says to Mike, that he's going to make a paperweight out of it. That's (laughs) gross. As a souvenir. But also, where is everyone else in the world when this is happening? Did no, no one else was around? Well, funny you should ask. Here's the thing. The FBI was on the case. They knew that Mike was involved. They just didn't have the evidence yet. So they know this is their guy, right? They know that Mike and Roger are the ones who are killing Ken and Jimmy. They just don't have enough evidence, but they do have enough evidence to arrest Mike for transportation of obscene materials, and they had enough evidence to arrest him for that arson in the Kentucky warehouse. Mm. So they do arrest him, he's convicted, and Mike is sent to prison for eight years. Eight? Yeah, eight years. Because remember, this is just arson, it's not for the murders. Okay. So while in prison, of course, should not shock you. Mike tries to have Roger killed (laughs) because he's worried that Roger's going to talk to the FBI and rat him out about these two murders. And here's the thing. Mike was right. So (laughs) Roger was cooperating with the FBI and he did agree to wear a wire and visit Mike in prison. (laughs) Oh my God. So Mike was facing two murder trials, one for Ken Hanna 
and one for Jimmy Mays. And this is where the story just takes another left turn. It gets even wilder. How does it get wilder? There's a paperweight made out of skin and bone. It gets crazier. While Mike is waiting trial, he escapes prison. I'm just not going to ask how. Well, I think the thing is he had tons of money. And from what I've read, he was in cahoots with some guards. So he was able to bribe his way out of prison, basically. And by the way, I should say here, at this time, at this by this point, Mike had left Joan. Or maybe more aptly, Joan had left Mike. Yeah. And he had a girlfriend, Jeanette Evans, who I think originally worked for him in the factory doing some kind of secretarial stuff. But they started dating. So Mike's in prison. But he's dating this lady, Jeanette. So he escapes. And then, of course, he's put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Yeah. So he and his lover, Jeanette, are driving across the country. They were on the loose, by the way, for months. Oh, man. On the lamb. So they're kind of taking a joyride across the country, just crisscrossing across states. By the way, inside his car, he had five guns, $500,000 in cash, $1 million in jewelry, and he had a wig. A wig! A wig to disguise yourself. Absolutely necessary. Must have a wig if you're on the lam. So they weren't just joyriding. I mean, they were. They were cruising around America. They were also on a mission, though. So Mike is bloodthirsty. He knows by this point that Roger has sold him out to the FBI. So Mike and Jeanette are <laughs> crisscrossing the country looking for Roger. Oh, Roger, he left town. He was, like, out. Well, Roger was still in Atlanta. And they knew this. So they were driving around the country and made it to Atlanta to find him. Roger was about to be placed in the witness protection program. Mm -hmm. But they caught him before he went into the program. So they knew he was in Atlanta. They finally caught up with him and they hired someone to kill him. And they did. They shot him dead. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, he later died in the hospital, actually. So he survives a few days and then dies in the hospital. Mike was finally, well, I should say Mike and Jeanette, were both finally caught on November 9th. 1978. He had stopped at a bank in Connecticut and he tried to withdraw $30,000. That's <laughs> not suspicious. It doesn't seem like that's a very smart move if no. you're on the lam trying to hide from authorities. But he tried it. Of course, this raised a red flag for the bank manager who called the police. They actually recognized him from the 10 most wanted list from the FBI. The wig didn't do its job. I guess not. They were able to see past the wig. Okay. (laughs) Cleverness. After being caught, he went on trial for the two murders. Remember Ken Hanna and Jimmy Mays, Mm -hmm. the former employees. And he was finally convicted on October 21st, 1979. He was sentenced to life in prison. Mm -hmm. And Jeanette was also sentenced too, because she's aiding and abetting. She's helping this felon escape. So my favorite part, what happened to everyone, right? We know that they were both convicted, but of course there's an after story. Yeah. A little epilogue here. Let's start with Jeanette. So Jeanette was actually released from prison in 1992. For what reason? Well, you know, I think she just didn't have as long as a sentence, right? Because she was not convicted of murder. She was convicted of aiding and abetting the Mm. murderer. Mm -hmm. So she was released in 1992. Mike Thevis actually died in prison. Because he did have a life sentence. So he died in prison of a heart attack in 2013. Oh, that's recent. recent. Yeah. How Not old even was 10 he? years ago. No. 
How old yeah, is he? I don't know. Well, whatever, 19, 2013 minus 1932. <laughs> no, this is the time of This is the math. math. <laughs> We're not math people. We can't do numbers. Almost 80 years old. Is that yeah. right? Seems right. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Get my little phone out for... <laughs> The house actually has an epilogue here. In the 90s, this house, by the way, is still existing. It's in Sandy Springs. Mm. In the 90s, guess who lived in this house? Was it Hugh Hefner? (laughs) It was not Hugh Hefner. It was Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown. No! (laughs) They lived in this house in the 90s. Are you kidding? (laughs) Yeah. So this house has a very storied history. Lots going on there. Oh, my God. Also, we know the FBI agent who was working on this case, the lead agent for the case, who got him convicted, he, interestingly, later went on to work on the Bernie Madoff case. Bernie Madoff case. Oh, gosh. This is so weird how all the stories seem connected. Yeah. By the way, I want to give a huge shout out to Jeff... Mesh, who is a journalist, he did a lot of research on this. So, of course, some of this is my own research, but a lot of it was Jeff's research, too. He visited with the family, he went to the family archives, and he dug a lot of this up. So, I'm relying on a lot of the stuff that he did to tell this story. So, we'll definitely link this on our Instagram and in the description of the episode. So, if you're interested in learning more, definitely look up Jeff Mesh and his story. And that's the story of Mike Phoebus, the king of pornography, the sultan of smut. Did they ever have any children? Do you know? They did have kids. Oh. Yeah, I don't know if they're still in Atlanta, <laughs> but sorry, I know I that they had children. Judgy. Yeah, yeah, that's so wild. That is really crazy to like. Not only I'm gonna kill one person, like that's a lot. <laughs> Let's try three. Yeah. Whoa, it's crazy. Oh my god. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for giving me the murder that I asked for. Yeah, asking shall receive. There is a murder. Yeah. Not one. Not two. Three. I would be interested to see how he actually escaped prison. Like, did they walk him out and then he, like, ran away? He's not crawling on his belly somewhere, you know? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he just walked out by bribing the guards. And Jeanette had the car warm and ready to go with a wig. Well, that wraps that up. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Happy New Year, Year. everyone. That's that for that. (laughs) Bye.